Hey everybody, welcome back to Meta Perspective, where we go meta on subjects like insight, awakening, reality, uh, metaphysics, and other related subjects. Today we have a special guest. It's Yanush Willen from Deep Mindfulness. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I'll just we were talking about the pronunciation before. I'll just I'll say it's Yanush Wellen. Yanush Wellen. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. That is that is difficult for me. I'm sorry. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. I'm happy for lots of mispronunciations. I'm very open. All sorts of yeah. creative interpretations. Yeah, that's kind of how my my last name is. Uh, is actually it's it could be it's I it's 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 Yandoli, but mm-hmm. it has an I at the end, and a lot of people think it's an L, so they'll say Landoli, or if they or Ian Doli or, but never I, I deal with it every day. <laughs> nice. So I feel you, brother. Um, so you have you have a really awesome uh, YouTube channel. That's I mean that's how I found you, um, called Deep Mindfulness, and you have some great interviews on there and videos and even kind of like a little, um, you know, you go on this retreat and uh, you're kind of like filming on the way. And I thought that was a really cool way to introduce these concepts to an audience. Um, so, you know, where how did you get involved into your, your path or journey on, on meditation and, and awakening? Yeah. So I started meditating when I was a little kid. Um, well, I was probably 13. I say a little kid at that point, I thought I was probably fully grown, full grown adult yeah. from that perspective. But I grew up on this little hippie farm in Rhode Island and I was raised by my sisters and mom. And in some ways it was very idyllic. And I spent a lot of time exploring and I'd just be alone exploring in the woods. And in other ways, it was very um, unstructured and uh, sort of unpredictable, which is the downside of it being that kind of hippie lifestyle. But I um, absorbed both of those experiences and meditation was one of the ways I kind of made sense of the world because I was in a pretty, I guess now I'd look at it as being a pretty conservative town and we were pretty, you know, experimental and exploratory as just a, as a family, um, I always felt like something was out of place and meditation and uh, um, some Buddhist philosophy was how I made sense of that. Along with being a punk, that was like a very central part of the way I lived for a lot of my life. And also getting high as I, around the same time I started to smoke pot and, you know, thought I was discovering things that had never been discovered. And so there's a sense of exploration and wanting to really know the world and wanting to, you know, really see what's possible for a human being to experience. And so uh, as I began to meditate, as I began to um, explore those things, uh, that kind of transitioned into art making. And so I went to school for making fine art, but that really was a kind of meditation process for me. Uh, And then, uh, you know, through, um, uh, 9-11 hits, and it really, really rocked my world. I really was shaken by this, what felt like a violence to me and, and everyone I knew. Um, and I really had to decide that I want to just sort of, you know, kind of fool around in my life, like I, to some degree, had been doing, or did I really want to dedicate myself to growing and uh, living as fulfilled of a life as I could? And luckily, I chose the latter. Yeah. And um, early on, I mean, when did you pick up a formal practice? Because I know you you went on several retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what was your first retreat experience? 
Well, formal practice and retreat experience were two different things. So the first formal practice that I picked up was when I was a teenager and came from uh, Zen and was holding a question in the mind all the time and experiencing the world through the lens of that question. Um, today, we might call that a kind of inquiry practice, but what people can do right now is hold this experience as a question rather than a sort of statement. Um, what is this experience rather than, oh, this is just something I'm listening to or watching. What is it that's actually happening? So that was something I became very interested in uh, at a young age. And then that practice, like I mentioned, slowly transitioned into really looking at the world and wondering what it was and translating that through drawing and painting and that kind of thing. So that was my first entree into practice. What does it mean to try to interact with the world and experience the world more deeply by attending to the experience as closely as I could? My first retreat experience was a um, insight meditation retreat in the sort of Vipassana tradition. However, I had been training with, um, actually, you know, now that I think of it, one of my very early retreats was with Shinzen Young, but I had been training with Shinzen Young prior to that learning from his techniques, my main teacher. And so when I went into an insight retreat, I had this sort of um, arsenal of meditation techniques that I went in with. And if you know anything about myself or Shinzen, um, we're metasystemic teachers. So we're trying to teach from all of these different perspectives at once as a way of sort of loading people up with the, all the goodies from all these different traditions, ideally without overloading them with too much data. Yeah. And the, that insight meditation retreat, was that based in the U S or was it actually like overseas? That was in the U S yeah. I didn't get to go to Asia for a number of years, but for a while I was trying to go to Asia every year um, for at least a month of retreat. And that was going wonderfully. And then COVID hit and I haven't been back since. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go back soon, but it's a little irresponsible. Plus the country that I like to go to the most was Burma. And I haven't yet figured out if Burma's safe to return to given the sort of civil unrest that's happening there. But Burma has the, is the seat of a lot of modern uh, meditative innov innovation, modern meaning like turn of the century. Yeah. And that, that first insight meditation retreat was that what, what kind of um, Vipassana did they teach there? Well, whatever they were teaching is not what I was doing, which is one of the funny <laughs> things. I have a, um, I have a teacher named George Haas, someone who's a teacher and friend who was teaching Shinzen's system. So what I was doing is a combination of Shinzen's system and what is called the progress of insight, which is a very old traditional a map of classical awakening. And for me, that was how those two worked. They just fit together really perfectly. I actually teach a course now, which is teaching that combination. Um, uh, my teacher Shinzen's techniques along with the progress of insight. And the course is very brilliantly called the progress of Shinsight. It's sort of a, 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 a clunky pun, but that's the idea. So that's what I was doing was the techniques in the progress of insight in relationship to Shinzen. And what that means, if anyone knows this material, later Buddhism uh, became, I could say a little more three-dimensional where it would take in everything, anything and everything that was happening would be included. And 
the mind was geared more towards an open awareness rather than a sort of pointed single focus. And so it's bringing the combination of those two together of a sort of deconstructive practice and the sort of open awareness that's absorbing anything and everything. Yeah. I mean, you, you put it kind of in a nutshell right there, but for people listening who may not be familiar with both yep. those to really deconstruct it first, let's go to um, the progress of insight. So yeah. for, could you break down or deconstruct uh, the progress of insight? Yeah, I can. And just keep in mind, like it also takes me six months to do this. And that's why that's, there's a course for this matter. Oh, so sure, I'll sure. give a very, very dirty uh, description of what we're talking about here. <laughs> And then we can, you know, we can expand or if you have questions. So the general premise is that in early Buddhism, they noticed this tendency that people who would experience classical awakening tended to have these sort of watermarks. They would sort of have a similar experience to other people along the way. And so they started to kind of categorize these different experiences and then suggest that perhaps we could put them in a certain order of which thing kind of unfolded first. And so there are all these classic uh, insights that um, people might have heard of, but they're sort of stacked in a row in order to build up as much momentum as possible. So one insight is around what is the relationship of the body-mind? Classic question in philosophy, but meditation is where we actually experience the material. We really, really dig into what is the relationship of the body and the mind. Um, you know, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but another experience that we might talk about would be, um, non-self. So what is the experience of self? How does that occur experientially? And anyone listening to this now can notice that it seems like they have a self that is observing or watching this particular situation right now. So that is, uh, there's a sense of me, of I. How do we experience that? And how does that break down over time? And so the progress of insight is looking at all of these different ways of perceiving the world and uh, saying that, look for these particular details along the path of awakening. What I like to do that's a little different is to use different techniques to push people or to open people to specific insights. In some traditions, you'd only do one technique and you just look for these things along the way. Um, what Shinzen uh, sort of, I don't wanna say introduce, but what he emphasizes is that you can pick a specific insight and find techniques that will emphasize that insight until the system really, really absorbs that. So for instance, non-self or another one that I think is um, uh, a lot of people really need is around connection. A lot of people feel very, very lonely. And typically we try to fight that loneliness uh, in one way or another, but we can actually deconstruct the loneliness in two different ways. One is to go directly into the loneliness and the other one is to go into the experience of feeling connected and really, really cultivate you know, that side of it. And so if someone's doing that, I'm not just going to say, watch your breath and see if you feel connected. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. You can say, let's find practices that make you feel more connected. Let's find practices that actually deconstruct the loneliness very directly. So that's an example of how we'll use specific techniques in order to deal with specific challenges or guide people towards specific insights. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And you said it's it's a six month course. Yeah. And we're actually, wow. I mean, not to get too pluggy, but we're about to launch another round of that course um, uh, coming soon. And where can people find that? Oh, well, there you go. They can find it at uh, deepmindfulness.io. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. It's and, really um, fun. It's really fun. You have a short video on your YouTube channel talking about some of that as well. Um, so if people want to see that, I'll put it in the description. Great. Um, to shift gears a little, and this is going to be a very generic question in a sense, but I think it's one that's worth constantly exploring mm. is, um, you know, your view on awakening, because yeah. a lot of people come to that terminology with a lot of, um, you know, assumptions. And yep. so it's great to hear people's perspectives on, you know, what, what is awakening to them. Great. And that actually before you ask that question, I was going to say, I have one more thing to add about what we talk about as the progress of insight or any map of awakening. One key is that we're, we're moving towards awakening. So in the progress of insight, the end of the map is awakening. And we want to be aware and, and talk about that very openly. So that's a perfect segue. Um, I am and have been trained by and usually practice with liberation-driven teachers. The premise being that awakening, classical awakening, is a real thing. It's available to anyone who is interested. And if we're willing to put in time, uh, probably less than most people think, uh, maybe as much time as a serious hobby, uh, we can have at least a significant taste of what has been described throughout these you know, many millennia as classical awakening. One problem today is that we have turned uh, classical awakening into this sort of Santa Claus and because it's been, we only often hear about it from the point of view of Westerners who've, you know, who have no real contact or understanding of what it means. So what they do is they sort of fill it in with a bunch of sort of ideas, like there's some magical guru on a mountaintop and, and there's so that maybe they're floating, or maybe it's like a, a monk in a cave or, or this kind of thing. And there's things that people just assume about awakening that are just not, um, were never meant to be the case. Uh, a couple things. One is that people assume one problem we have in our society or our culture today, people assume that what meditation is for is to relax and to reduce stress. Those are two really lovely side effects of what meditation was designed to do. And, and trust me, go for it. Relaxation and reduce stress is awesome. And it's, it's like, um, it's like saying that, well, the purpose of a lion is that if you pull some of their hairs, you can make a lovely little toothbrush out of it. And it's like, well, maybe, yeah, I mean, that's great. And of course you want nice, clean teeth, but this is a, this is a, this is a lion. This is, this is a, you know, the king of the jungle to some degree. So, uh, meditation is designed by its nature to transform us deeply an awakening would be one way station or one sort of watermark on the path of deeply transforming our relationship to every aspect of our life. I say it's one aspect because another um, difficult or another sort of myth that people have is that awakening is like an end state where you get awakening. And then not only is it finished and you're done developing, but also all of your problems have gone away. And that is just fundamentally not the case. Yeah. And it's hard for people to understand like, wait, so you could experience awakening and you could still, um, 
have tragedy in your life and feel sad, or you could still, you know, experience the early stages of awakening and still have lots of problems in your life. So awakening is one real two. uh, It doesn't mean you're a God. doesn't mean you don't have to brush your teeth, right? You still have all the conditions of a ordinary human. Um, Three, let's say is totally attainable is, is, is available for people. And what would four be? Um, it can be arrived at through systematic practice over the course of not that much of life. And then I guess if I were to add a five in there, I would say that it's a great starting point and that we don't want to think of it as the end of a path. Whenever I talk to somebody and they say, oh, I'm interested in awakening, I say, okay, what kind of life do you want after awakening? And they usually are mildly startled and they say, well, what do you mean after awakening? Well, why would, I, why would I think about or worry about the kind of life I want after awakening? Which usually embedded in that is this idea that awakening will solve all my problems. So I don't even need to worry about any of that. What I like to do, going back to customizing practice, is to say, what do you want that life to be like? Let's pick meditation practices that will gear you towards that kind of life. And that is for me, what it means to find a path that's unique to individuals. Yeah, that's great actually. And um, what, what type of those, like you said, the different, you design like a meditation um, practice that will, you know, help them reach a certain goal or, or, or go in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the facets uh, that you're describing there? Like what are some of the practices and, and maybe their outcomes or desired outcomes or, yeah. you know? Yeah. So something that is also a challenge is a, a, not only a meditation teacher, but a meta systemic meditation teacher, where you're talking about all these different facets and streams coming together is we can approach this from any direction at all. And yeah. one of the things that people don't, necessarily get because we're talking about something pretty unique in human experiencing is that part of awakening is you're, you're breaking the narrative of self. We always, a lot of us have this, most of us have this sense that there's a linear self. I've been one person since I was a little kid. Somehow I'm the same person I was then. There's something that's a through line. That's the same. And I am that person right now. And I'm going to continue being that person in 10 seconds or 10 years. And partially we're breaking down that idea that actually that personhood is a, is a hologram. And so if that kind of breaks down and the sense of me being the center of the universe breaks down and the sense of inside and outside me versus the world, which is a lot of where our pain comes from, if that breaks down, what are you left with? One metaphor you could describe as uh, would be that you're sort of a point in space. Even that's actually a little... I think that that would be a, my, my non-dualist friends will, will, will quibble with me on being a point <laughs> yeah. in space, but yeah. let's say even your, what if you're a non-point in non-space, even more confusing, right? How do you live life? What do you do? The joke that I'll say sometimes is it's all fun and games, but try taking your kids to soccer when you don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. Well, we're entering some strange territory here. So how do you know? What, what, did, what to do. I remember being on a retreat once and being so, you know, something clicked so hard. I was so satisfied with just existing. I couldn't get myself to walk. I was in the middle of a step 
And I just ran out of the motivation to ever move again. And I was like, that's it. I don't need to, I could, I could die here. I'm just standing there. I was like, I couldn't even figure out how to get my body to move. I was like, I don't want to, I don't care. Yeah. And it was very satisfying and very useful and important. And another part of me recognized, well, I had committed to somebody else that I wanted to talk to them. And I said, I'd be there. And, and so I was able to use that motivation to guide me to actually start moving the body. It's very slow, but I got it to work eventually. Um, so this is a big roundabout way to say that because you can go in any direction, I constantly ask the question of which direction do we want to go and be gearing ourselves in that direction the whole time. So for instance, this is, this is all setting up this example of what are some of the techniques. Mm -hmm. A very common technique that people use is watching the breath. Great technique. I have no problem with people watching the breath. <clears throat> The problem that I have is when people think that watching the breath is meditation and everything else is just sort of, you know, gobbledygook when actually any sense experience can work as our path. So let's say someone wants to meditate and I go th with, through their values with them and I say, okay, what's important to you in your life? This happened with a student recently and they listed out their values and they listed, you know, friendship um, connection, contribution, community, and just all of these very interpersonally related ways of, uh, uh, of, of values in their life. And so I, in my mind, I'm thinking, am I going to tell this person, watch your breath? Yeah. Watch your breath. And you'll see how your community develops or watch your breath. And you'll just see how friendships and connection and your relationship with your child or whatever. We'll just see how that works. Or am I going to tell them, I'm going to have you pay very close attention to your emotion in your body. And when you're talking to somebody else, tracking what your emotional experience is, tracking what you sense their emotional experience is, and just going back and forth. And that's going to be the object of meditation. Now that's harder to do than watch the breath. But if our goal is interpersonal connection, that's a much more valuable object of meditation. So for me, I'm always picking objects based on where people want to go. Yeah. Um, and kind of a side off from there, um, what are, do you, do you teach like the jhanas? I'm, I don't focus on the jhanas. I don't have a big emphasis on the jhanas. Um, I've, uh, I've, I do teach them to some degree, but it's almost always functional. Right. It's almost always how much concentration do you need in order to do X? And sometimes people need more. And so I'll kind of guide them down the jhanas. I'll guide jhanas if somebody is doing it for fun and they're like, this would be so much fun. But I'm also clear that jhanas don't in and of themselves give us insight. Uh, you can do them in a way that will be sort of insight focused. Um, they're good at balancing the mind. And so for me, it's about, you know, uh, it comes back to this thing over and over again of why. So sure we can do jhanas, but why? And if the yeah. answer is I want my mind to be more stable so that I can bring my practice into my, you know, goals and commitments or into the way I just want to be able to relax more. And I would love to have my mind not be bouncing around so much. And this is a good tool at this moment. Great. But if it's, I like cool benchmarks and you know, I think that if I do this, then I'll be a good meditator. Well, I start to, you know, raise a few questions. Yeah. And as far as like a Vipassana practice, 
do you uh, do you use both like I guess you could say like the Goenka body scan type or or specifically noting or both? <clears throat> I'll absolutely use both. And so what I want to emphasize here is that um, it took it was a while before I realized this. This is something that sort of came to me uh, in, in a conversation with Shinzen. We're talking about it. Both of the two techniques you just mentioned, body scanning, which if people don't know, it's sort of moving through the body from at the beginning from the top of the head and scanning down very slowly to notice the sensations extremely carefully and mental labeling, which is whenever some phenomena arises, you label the sense gate that is activated. So right now, if you're seeing in the mind, you might say the word see right now, if you're hearing sound, you might say the word hear. And by doing that, you break down that narrative, that personal narrative. What both of those techniques are doing is using something that's already happening in the mind and hot wiring it to push our meditation forward. Brilliant, right? I mean, the mind's already going to talk. The mind's already going to produce visual location. It's just always going to be doing that. So why not use that to, to create horsepower for our practice? So both of these techniques, which you know became focused on and popularized in Burma around the turn of the century, were ways to try to optimize meditation in order to protect uh, the tradition from Christian missionaries who are trying to sort of absorb Asia effectively. So they're modern inventions. So both of the two big modern inventions in meditation, which is part of why we have mindfulness today and everyone's talking about meditation. So these inventions came out of the same location with the same goal, which was to optimize practice to help people move down the path of awakening. So I'm, I'm giving this sort of bigger view because for me, this is what's interesting. So in the same way, I like using innovation and whatever works. These guys were like, whatever works, we're going to even use the thinking mind to drive practice forward because we want people to move to awakening as fast as possible. So we were impenetrable from the sort of Christian, uh, you know, waves that are attempting to take over our countries. So yes, I teach both again for a purpose. And part of the purpose is that meditation has become uh, modernized to the degree to which we can use any technique and gear people in a certain direction. Yeah, no, that's wonderful um, yeah. that you broke it down like that. And is, is there a difference between uh, noting and see, hear, feel? Okay, so now we're getting very technical. So yes and no. Um, so I'm both trying to answer the questions and give people a kind of metasystemic view of the world as, as I see it and as I hopefully will be helpful to them. So whenever we talk about any experience, we're creating a kind of abstraction, we're creating a, a, a representation of the experience. So if I talk about the sensations of my hand, I, I can only describe what I'm feeling right now, pressures and sensations and temperature. And each of those words is not the thing. So if we look at the world and say, at any moment, we're experiencing this much stuff. This is the pie of our perception. This is everything we can experience. We can slice that pie into any number of ways. And if we slice the pie in one way, we're going to perceive it differently. It's not just neutral. If we, if we describe the world as the breath and not the breath, great. 
Well, now we have a very simple way to look at all this stuff. And if it's a very thin slice of the pie, the breath, the problem with that is all the rest of the stuff is distraction. Everything else is in the way, so to speak. It's a problem. We got to learn to ignore it or metabolize it or something. So what uh, Shinsen's see here feel system does is take the pie and slice it into three pieces and say at any point, it's one of these three, you're either seeing, hearing, or feeling. Uh, and you can you relate to that any way you want. You could label it in your mind, say the words, see, hear, or feel. You could just experience it. Fine. All of those are fine. So that's just to say we can divide the world in any way and we can use anything to refer to these. We could call it, you know, we could be referring to see, hear, feel and call it apple, pear, orange. Like it doesn't matter. The words aren't that important as long as we're experiencing it very closely. The, the term noting is, uh, has become popular through the Burmese tradition uh, popularized by Mahasi Saidao. And it means that we use a mental word to uh, mark a sensory experience. Uh, that's what that tradition means. I use slightly different language, which is the difference between noting and labeling. So labeling is what I just described. You use a word, you label it in your mind so that the mind can soak into it. Noting, well, every meditation has noting. You just notice the experience. You don't have to use a word, but you can. But the key is that you experience what's happening. So it, when you say, is there a difference between see, hear, feel, and noting, what I would say is that uh, see, hear, feel is a meditation system in which you can use labels uh, and as you note your experience, as you notice whatever is arising. You can use labels. You don't have to. In a noting practice that's traditional for Mahasi, at least at certain points, you have to label. It's just okay. part of the protocol. So if, does that answer the question or does that, is there anything left there? No, that that's like you you answered it wonderfully. That's exactly okay. what I was what I was looking for, and um, you know you you were taught we talked about no, you know notice uh, noticing versus noting on a small exchange on Twitter, and you you kind of broke it down right there. Um, now say on on the say at the Mahasi um, tradition. If you're sitting down, say you, you have you sit down for an hour and a half. Are you um, you're you're labeling the entire time? Depending on where you are in the process. So keep in mind that keep in mind that every teacher teaches in a way, and within their way, it's all logically coherent. So when we talk about these different traditions, often we wonder which is the right one. If we trust the teacher and we trust their experience, we believe that they actually have the experience that we want, whatever technique they describe is often going to be perfect for us at that time. Even if it's different and it contradicts somebody else, someone's going to say, you do it like this. And it's going to totally contradict Mahasi who says you do it like that. So in the Mahasi tradition, it has a, prog a, a procession of sort of what happens first, where you're going to be at, how you change the practice. The beginning of the practice, when you start, you're just attending to the sensations of the abdomen and noticing when the abdomen is rising, noticing when the abdomen is falling. Those are your two labels. And you're really soaking into that experience, rising, falling, rising, falling. When 
something else arises, right? Here's our pie. It's sliced with a little slice with breath in the middle. When anything else arises in the rest of that pie, you just say distraction, distraction, back to rising, falling, rising, falling. Eventually, when you get really stable, you can really observe rising and falling. You let the mind drift a little bit and you're just, okay, rising, falling, sound, rising, falling, sound again. Oh, okay, rising, falling, sensation of my foot, rising, falling. And you're letting the mind just drift a little bit. Now, if you get too drifty and you fall off and you're just distracted, eh, probably better go back to rising, falling. But if you have enough stability, you can start to just label whatever's happening as long as your labels aren't a narrative. You know, oh, I hear a sound in the kitchen, which reminds me of that cake my mom used to make. Remember that time? Now you're just in thinking, <laughs> you're just in narrative thinking. So when you're labeling, you're breaking the world down into a non-narrative sensory flow. The world is sort of being sliced up, atomized into just sense experiences. Eventually you can let go of rising and falling and you're just labeling, you know, it's like, you know, it's like visual sensation, uh, sensation in my arm, sound, thought, you know, impulse to move. You're just labeling any one of these specific things. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just one little brief caveat before I uh, wrap that up is that in Mahasi, you just let it be open and label whatever there is that's happening uh, in the way that I teach and the way that um, other metasystemic teachers will, will teach is that you can pick a certain section of your experience, not just rising and falling the abdomen, but what about mental image? What if you just stay with mental image the way you might stay with the breath, but you just observe the way the mind is holding space, which is very powerful. And this is later Buddhism gets more, much more into this, but just notice right now, as you're sitting here or listening to this, the mind holds a sense of space. Some things are up, some things are down in front of behind. And of course, um, this isn't, uh, this isn't literally true because it's in front of someone and behind someone else. It's relatively true, relatively true to our perception. And so perception is creating space and each of us has its own little perceptual universe. And once you start to notice that, that sort of solidity, this is how reality is, starts to sort of get fuzzy. And then it gets very funny when you realize that the mind is arranging space based on the eyes. Things feel above if they're above the eyes. Things feel below if they're below the eyes. And so the mind is in this very weird way, organizing all of reality based on this very weird analog thing. It creates this whole XYZ axis of perceptual reality that is organized just around this one like ocular unit because it's a very important thing to help us survive and pass genetic material forward. So I totally just don't remember what the question started with, but I thought that was an important point to make. And it was great. It was great. Okay. So for, now within that, and I hope I'm not going too abstract here, um, is when, when you're, when you're going through the labeling or the noting in any of these methods, uh, you know, at, at that point, is that when the insights arrive, arise, the insights are supposed to arise, or is it overall in general or both? Yeah. So let's, Shinzen is very particular about definition, which I love. And he'll, you'll, you'll ask that exact question you gave and he'll give a 30 minute answer on what, the, what does it mean to know something? How do we define definitions? So I won't go there, but there is a need to 
get clear on some definitions real quick. So in a traditional Buddhist perspective, which I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, purist Buddhist by any sense, but I like a lot of Buddhist technology because uh, really, really detailing and experiencing perceptual reality was at the foreground is the forefront of their religion for so long. In other words, they have the most developed meditative technology of any of the traditions, including Christianity, et cetera. They just focused on it. So from a Buddhist perspective, we could say that there are three ways of knowing the world, of experiencing, of, of taking in the world. There's understanding, insight, and wisdom. Understanding is very straightforward. If anyone is listening to this and is maybe interested or not interested, it's incredibly boring, but they generally understand the words I'm saying. They kind of get what I'm getting at more or less. That's understanding. I can describe to you, uh, this is like water, it's flavored. I won't tell you what the flavor is, but I can describe to you what it's like. Okay, it's a little tart and it's a little, you know, a little sweet. There's a little darkness to it, whatever. You could understand that. But the difference between me explaining that to you or to the viewer and you tasting this is radically different. They're very, very different. So if you taste the water, this flavor, this water I have that has some flavoring in it, that is insight directly. If you feel the sensations of your hands right now, feel them, you know, just as they are, that is insight. And it seems like, well, that's insight. That doesn't seem very insightful. It's just a sensation. Oh, no, no, that's, that's the mistake we make. This is not relevant. It's just a sensation. This, the sensations of our hand are explaining to us in a very direct, but also very strange way, the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality as a, for a human being. So that's kind of weird, right? Everything we experience is insight. So when we're doing any technique, if we're plugged into our current sensory experience, that is going to have us a direct line of insight and we can gather insight. What happens is we gather, gather enough insight, you taste enough flavored beverages, right? On its own, the mind will organize all that data and give us a conclusion about the nature of flavored beverages, I don't know. But it'll give us this whole set of understandings that we didn't come up with and we didn't uh, build ourselves, but it'll come out fully formed. And that's called wisdom. So understanding is my description, bunch of words. It's like this, it's like that. Okay, the mind can get that. The mind thinks it's God. The mind thinks it's everything. So it'll say, yeah, I, I totally understand that. I completely understand this. If I philosophize enough, I'll be free. That's what the mind tells us. <laughs> then there's our direct experience, the insight, actually tasting the substance and realizing, okay, this is a very particular experience in and of itself. We get into a whole weird, weird world of like time and space and all these things, which is our current sensory experience is happening with all of this material. If we experience that closely enough, 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 enough times in any tradition, in any practice, wisdom will arise, which is not something we created. It'll arise out of nothing. And if you start to really get the flavor of where that wisdom comes from, and it's sort of the trajectory of that wisdom, it sort of like came from this place or this non-place, and it sort of has this way of forming and it has this sort of quality to it, that's insight, right? We're starting to get insight and we do enough of that. And suddenly the system creates wisdom that shows us the nature of all creation and destruction of sensory experience. It's showing us all of this material. So when you say, 
is the insight X, Y, or Z. Insight is any direct experience. And the more we can train ourselves to just have direct experiences, like as you're listening to this or is it looking at me, just what is it? what does it actually look like? What is the actual experience? The more we can do that, the more the system will just push us into experiences of wisdom. Okay. So you just answered a question that I have been unwrapping for months. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Literally. Um, Great. I appreciate that. Um, now I want to get into something that's been really kind of emphasized. I mean, at least I've only, I've come across it more recently as like very popular, I guess, on uh, the Dharma meditation scene and that's mm-hmm. uh, stream entry. Sure. So, and for people, you did a really cool uh, subreddit stream entry inter- interview with uh, Shenzhen Young, which was awesome. Nice. Uh, so what, can you define for people what stream entry is coming from your perspective? Sure. So again, I'm, I, I have my own definition largely because I'm trying to accommodate many traditions. And some traditions will say it is like X and be very adamant. It's always like this. Some traditions will say it's like Y and say it's always like that, et cetera. So I'm trying to find a definition that works with all of these. The way I distri- describe stream entry is that the body-mind are perceiving experience has a new default and it switches over to a default where it uh, metabolizes the general suffering of existing, which is existing has pain just by its nature. It's already learning to metabolize that difficulty on its own naturally. And I could explain how it does that, but that's what it's doing. And it's also geared towards the joy and splendor of existing, just the existential delight of the existing experience itself, that our body-mind is now defaulted in that direction. Now, it doesn't mean we're completely there all the time. It doesn't mean we are, uh, we, we, we don't have any problems again, but it's like the snake has entered the, you know, the tube. It cannot turn around. It is just, that's where it is. A lot of the way you gauge your development in that is to see how quickly you can access that material. How long does it take? For some people, it'll take months and months, and you have to sit down and really get into it, and you'll have a little peak experience on a retreat. Well, that's probably probably not stream entry. You probably have some ways to go. How quickly can you access it? How deep is the access when you get there, and how long can you stay there? So I won't. Uh, certain traditions, it's it's just like not acceptable to talk about your level of attainment. So I often am a little hesitant to talk about that. Um, I will say though, that in my early meditation experience, I had, I remember this experience that I had that felt like just, this was it. I had this incredible, like, you know, uh, it's like touching the face of God, like, whoa, just a moment where I was just like, whoa, this is incredible. This is it. Um, And I'll say, honestly, in my experience, this current moment is deeper and more transformative and more rich and sort of powerful than that peak experience was then. So really we're trying to change our default setting, what our baseline is. And I think stream entry is where the baseline has switched to a place where it is naturally doing those two processes, metabolizing the difficulty and pain of existing. And it's geared towards the joy and, uh, you know, expressive, animated, beautiful quality of being a existing human being. Then as you move forward, uh, we start to really emphasize 
what it means to enact that way of being in the world, no longer just receiving our perception and soaking into that. But how do you, how do you speak in a way? How do you shake hands in a way? How do you play music in a way? How do you swim in a way that is actually expressing that same primordial kind of magic? And I think that a lot of traditions will forget that entire side where we can get very focused on the receiving side and forget about the giving side. And the giving side is what we would call morality. And I think in our modern world, there's a degree to which we've abandoned morality. It's one reason why actually, this is not to say like, I'm going to get a little political here, but you know, there's a sort of uh, movement uh, several years ago where there's a guy who's a, um, you know, I think somewhat questionable character in various ways, but also very smart in certain ways named Jordan Peterson. Maybe you've heard of him, but his whole thing was like, clean your room. And that's a great like moral grounding and you can ground yourself morally. And he's <laughs> yeah. a, he's a pretty right-wing guy, um, yeah. relatively speaking. And it showed me that people on the right have sort of, they, they still talk about morality and a lot of people on the left, which is a lot of where the spiritual world is, has sort of abandoned morality. And they're like, we don't really talk about that. We'll just hope everyone is moral. And the problem with that is that we lose all of the awesome qualities of what does it mean to be a, a good person? What does it mean to express those things, those, those pieces of wisdom in the world and to, you know, to give back just in this very, you know, simple rudimentary um, at the same time, like kind of cosmic way. So again, I don't recall what the question was, but hopefully that answered it. I was, it was referring to the stream entry. Stream entry. Um, there you go. But yeah, the morality, I think is one of the highest practices. I mean, that if you're talking yeah. about discipline and, and really an endless, I mean, you can never end that, yeah. that equation. It's just which again is part of the reason why I really start people off thinking about their values. Cause that is just absolutely a moral, moral practice. Yeah. Yeah. And so is, is stream entry, is that, is that realistic for, for people that are on the path, so to speak, like it, you know, for the average person, right. Yeah. If, I, if I can frame it like that, um, lay people yep. is, is stream entry realistic. 100%. 100%. It's just, it's like, um, I'm trying to think. So um, I used to have friends when I grew up who juggled. They're just like friends who are like into juggling for whatever reason. Um, and a very high, not very high, but a, a, a good watermark for people juggling was if you could do a seven ball juggle. It's complex because it's the, the number of them. It's complex because there's a lot happening at once. You have to so to begin by throwing all the balls, throwing all the balls in the air and like very quickly. But my friends, after practicing for a couple of years, could do that. You know, I think it's probably within that range of juggling seven balls. Yeah, it's hard. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not going to be a thing that like your average person could do. It's going to be a lot of work, repetition. But is it really the height? It's not the height of juggling. People are insane. You know, what I mean, people can do all sorts. Of, people can juggle seven balls behind their back and you know, like whatever. So the general uh, premise is uh, it is something that if you treat like a serious hobby, you can get there and not too long, but keep in mind, if people get overly fixated on stream entry, you can, for one thing, get, you can hinder yourself on the path of stream entry. But the other side is that if you 
um, aren't focused on the overall side, not just receiving, but also giving, meaning not just awakening, but uh, how to enact that in your life, it can cause a lot of problems in your life. There's the classic story or the sort of classic joke of the person who experiences stream entry on retreat and comes home and their taxes aren't paid and their partners left them. Like, is that the life you want? And so we need to start focusing on both sides of that very early on. And what would you say is, I mean, I guess there's, there's no guaranteed way, but what would cause it, you know, what would make stream entry likely for a, a generally serious practitioner? Yeah. Well, my answer is going to be very, very colored by my own experience. And I want to emphasize that anytime, and you'll notice this from any teacher and you want to really keep an eye out for this, they're typically going to say, and my answer is going to be pretty similar. They're typically going to say, well, the real good path happens to be the one that I also happen to choose. Right. So that's probably how I'm about to answer, but just keep in mind that every teacher says that, and you get the idea that whoever sounds the most authoritative or whoever has like the best, I don't know, like je ne sais quoi, like whoever like has the certain something you're like, well, that must be the right path. Cause they seem so convincing or they're so adamant or they, you know, know a lot of, you know, uh, ancient languages or whatever that they're definitely, they, they're the one who knows it's a little trickier than that. So my personal perspective, this is just, and this is how I teach. And what I think you should go for is what feels attractive for you um, is find someone who you feel like is speaking from personal experience and can uh, speak to uh, not only their personal experience, but your personal experience, meaning there's a sense of identification, like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to my experience. And it seems like they have a way to get there that feels believable. So I know that's a very vague answer, but it, the goal is to sort of uh, take away the people who just look shiny. Cause there are people who, and there's a lot of them who speak this, they just seem so like it's, it's like they're possessed and they're like, oh, like speaking about awakening from the sort of perspective. And they have no like real plan to get there other than just like hang out with them because that, that was their experience. They just sort of move there spontaneously. So for me, I like a metasystemic view, meaning I like a view that is pulling in from a lot of different traditions. Um, I like if a guide or a teacher is um, flexible to, to what's happening in my life. And it's not just like, just go live in the monastery. Because for some people, I think that's going to work beautifully. But again, it's what kind of life do we want afterwards? And then I, I like a, um, a guide who is also focused on the total package, not just the awakening piece. And for me, if you can find someone like that, then you're in good shape. Now, other teachers are going to say sort of different versions of that. Um, but that's my general take. The other thing I would say is there are some sort of technical things that you can do that are just going to optimize your practice. So, you know, going on retreats, I'm going to recommend going on retreats in different traditions, and it's going to be confusing at first, but you just go by the rules that they're saying, whatever they say to do, just do what they're saying. Watch out for when they say ours is the only one true technique and you've got to ignore all the rest because they'll all say that, especially more traditional practices. Um, if you can, even if you're not going to go a metasystemic route, get a metasystemic view at the beginning, learn how to practice with every one of your senses, 
then go to these other traditions and they'll just make sense. It's like, oh, of course I see what they're doing here. So going on silent retreat, if you can, in person is ideal. Uh, having a daily practice that you can return to over and over again, uh, increasing the number of hours that you're practicing on the cushion and off the cushion. Uh, and the, one of the big ones that people miss a lot of time is to find a community of people who have the same values, who are sharing the same sort of life direction. I want to explore the world. I want to you know, dig into this material, um, not necessarily the same technique, but the same values. And I just want to point to that because there is this idea that the meditative path is very solo. It's a solo path. And traditionally it's just not been the case that people have really progressed far on the path in an isolated way. Even that monk in the cave is likely receiving food from townspeople who are caring for them every single day. Yeah. So we, we have to switch this idea that the, it's, it's a solo tradition. We just need to push away the rest of our life. And that's the only way we'll move forward. It is actually a communal interactive process. And the more we can embrace that, the more it's going to integrate into our lives the most quickly. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's been great having you on, uh, but we got to cut it short here. I really no appreciate you coming on. Thanks um, for uh, listening to me uh, bloviate or answer your question 10 times larger than it was asked. No, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And, you know, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, you know, after watching your videos and, and seeing your website and, and your posts. Um, very talented dude, for sure. And uh, I appreciate your, your contributions. Um, you know, somebody, especially, I guess, I'm not, I'm not really that young, but so, you know, I think younger generations really are, would vibe with that kind of approach, um, which is, you know, what we need going forward. Right. We've got new yeah. generations coming up and it's, it's uh, really interesting the different, see the different kind of teachers and, and approaches out there. Um, but what would you have for words of advice or, or like parting words to the audience? Yeah. Hmm, parting words. What do I, I'm trying to think of anything I have not already said. Um, I guess, I don't know. This is, this is sort of a little bit off from what I've said before, which is good. Cause I don't want to just repeat myself, but what I would say is that if you can internalize the fact that every part of us is good or wholesome, every aspect and every drive within us is actually good and wholesome. And this took me a very long time to take in, but there's actually nothing wrong with me. There's no thing to fix. There's no self that's messed up and you know I'm judgmental and rude or whatever. I'm actually okay. What's happening though, is that these different things inside of me, they have these instinctual drives and those drives can be a little destructive, right? So I can you know, eat too much or I can judge people or you know, I used to be an alcoholic so they can drink in order to manage different things. But underneath that are these very wholesome drives. And a lot of our struggle is actually that we treat parts of ourselves as bad. I'm going to get rid of this part. I'm going to emphasize this other part. The part that wants awakening is, is good. The part that wants stability, now ah, I'm going to get rid of that. Well, that's a sure-fired path towards you know, put, get, getting us into the dark night. So what I would say is as much as possible, uh, recognize that our system has a kind of wisdom to it. 
And what we're trying to do is learn just the nature of our system. So we're going to be distracted. That's natural. We're going to struggle. That's actually natural. It's nature to struggle. And we're going to uh, need to take time to find out what our true needs and experience are, who our true self is, and that's okay. And the, the confusion and the difficulty getting there is natural to invite that as well. Invite the part that's wrong and just say, welcome to that if you can. And if you say, welcome to some part of yourself and it doesn't feel welcome, just say, welcome to that. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate that. And where, where can people find all your work? Easiest place is um, on our website, which is deepmindfulness.io. Or if you just search at deep mindfulness, one word, we kind of pop up on every platform. So wherever you you know exist at deep mindfulness. And uh, we also do a live stream three days a week. Um, it's uh, obviously there's no cost. And that's at twitch.tv slash you guessed it, deep mindfulness. Um, and we're there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, from 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern for about an hour. You can come ask questions. You can get on. We can hear about your meditation practice. And uh, and you can find out, you can get on our email list and find out when we're going to launch new courses. Awesome. And again, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the work you're doing. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right. Take care.